This is Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. Hello, hello. Welcome to Vulnerability Matters from the Money Advice Trust. I'm Chris Fitch. Lived experience, lived experience expert and expert by experience are probably phrases that all of us have come across and usually sitting alongside recommendations for firms and regulators alike to include more lived experience in product design or service testing. But while engaging and involving customers is rarely ever a bad thing to do, what is rare is for such recommendations to actually explain what they mean by these terms. And after all, in a world where everyone lives and everyone has experiences, what does a lived experience expert really mean in practical terms? And if we do involve people with lived experience, how do we go about it? Where do we find them? And what difference might this all make? Now, one person who knows their lived experience from their lunchtime is the vulnerability writer, researcher, and yes, you've guessed it, expert by experience, Dan Holloway. Although, as Dan gently pointed out, he is also an expert on vulnerability in other ways too. So I asked Dan to give us a crash course in the language of lived experience, a tour of its benefits and pitfalls, and a practical checklist or two as well. Dan, welcome to Vulnerability Matters. Now, you're someone who's spent the last two decades, as you've said in your many books and articles, not only writing and researching disability and vulnerability, but living through it too. Can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm bipolar. I have lived experience of, of various neurodivergences. Um, I, I am a, oh gosh, I'm a, I'm a university administrator by day. Um, by night, I'm many other things, um, including um, working on uh, disability and financial inclusion, workplace inclusion. Um, I am a co-director of a community interest company called What We Need Support, um, which curates uh, lists of support needs um, relating to all kinds of sectors, um, all kinds of, of need from communication to mobility um, and needs that might. The idea being that that it, it's it's applicable anywhere. Um, I'm also a researcher into disability and technology. Um, I look at um, the way that particular narratives um, around technology or around environmentalism, for example, um, can include or exclude uh, disabled people um, by, the, by the language we use and the stories we tell. So, Dan, lived experience, lived experience experts and lived experience panels are phrases that seem to be increasingly used in discussions at the moment. But clearly, everyone lives and everyone has experiences. So what is a lived experience expert when it comes to vulnerability? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a really interesting question because, as you say, everyone, everyone does indeed have experience and everyone has lived experience. But in any project, uh, such as trying to design a better project product or trying to design a better service, there are two key sets of experience. Um, there is the experience of the people who are building the project or product, and there is the experience of the people who are having the product built for them, the people who have the problem over here, over one side, the people who are trying to solve the problem over the other. They are both um, experts, and they both have 
essential experience, but one of those groups has their expertise and experience that they have come across through um, practice, applied practice or qualification or training, um, and the other gain the thing, the experience that makes them crucial stakeholders in the project simply by the way they live their lives. So that's mm. how I would so um, they've differentiate got that, between the two. So they've got that first-hand experience, which is absolutely critical, um, for, I guess, for defining the problem and solving that problem. Um, and they fit in like the, the missing jigsaw piece. So this term then, lived experience, uh, Dan, I know you've got a keen interest in history. Can you tell us where 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 has it come from? It's, it's... Yeah, I do, and no, I can't, I won't tell you exactly where it's come from because I know we have two minutes to talk about this. Um, <laughs> I did my doctorate on this, so oh, here we go. It's kind of a... <laughs> um, so no, I won't give you the full answer. Um, I will say that you, we can, we have to go back at least as far as the twelfth century, um, which for for some people is the, sort of the birth of the early modern age, where people started to be aware of themselves as subjects of their own experience. Um, you then had a key turn in the, the 16th century, the, the, the Reformation, something we all did at school in history, I'm sure. Um, and this idea that um, everyone has access to some to key important knowledge about themselves, not just the preacher at the front of the pulpit. Um, then a couple of centuries on from that, you have um, the growth of, of the diary, um, I guess. So uh, we all know from childhood things like Diary of an Edwardian Lady, um, lots of uh, medical journals. Uh, also, there, I mean, the, the key text in this context, um, obviously, is, is Robinson Crusoe, um, which is Daniel Defoe's obviously very famous book, which, which is a fictionalised account of a genuine diary of someone's lived experience, which sort of popularises this, this genre. Um, and then coming into the 20th century, uh, we have what you might call the, the various civil rights movements, um, starting with the labour movement, um, going through the suffragette movement. Um, obviously, that then you have um, you have civil liberties movements in America, um, and you have the disability rights movements in America, both sort of around the middle of the 20th century. Um, and yeah, those have really driven the the agenda um, right up to in more modern times what we would think of as as grassroots activism of the likes that you um, saw in the in the UK, for example, with with the Newbury Bypass, um, CND, uh, Save the Whale. I was part of the Save the Whale, and and these sort of grassroots movements mm. um, that we see most often in environmental. So you, you you've done um, sorry. Eight nine hundred years there in in in, in, a, in a, a minute or so, um, but the key element in there is um, um, the, the definition of what what is wisdom rather than received wisdom. Yeah. So a recognition of a different type of expertise that's through direct experience. Dan, let, let, let's move from history to to practice. I'm an essential service firm. Imagine that. Tell me a couple of things just to inspire me, just to get me going, that I can improve by really engaging with the lived experience of vulnerable or disabled customers. Yeah, so it's, it might not be very inspiring, but it's, it's absolutely crucial to your business. The first thing you can improve is engagement. Um, and this is one of the things that's really missing at the moment. So people 
tend to feel that they, for whatever reason, they don't want to disclose to you needs that they have, so you can't give them the service they need. Um, they might think that your product or your service isn't for them, um, so they don't sign up for for a service, or it might be a newsletter, whatever. Um, and improve listening to what people are saying so that you improve how you are communicating so that you send the message not just in not just when you do an awareness day or an awareness month not just when you have a hashtag but in the way that your copy on the really boring parts of your website is written um the images on again the really boring dull things about the different interest rates that you might have for savers but the images on those parts that you don't think of as being about disabled people, if you actually listen to disabled people and understand how important representation and language is, then you actually drive massive le levels of engagement um, and disclosure. And so that will affect your time. You'll, you'll save your staff a lot of time chasing people because they'll, people will now actually come to you. Um, you'll improve the rates of disclosure. Um, you'll, you'll just have a better match between your customers and your products and you'll have happier consumers. Um, so it's that mundane, it's making disability, it's making vulnerability that lives mundane, not having it in the, the tiny bit yeah. marked accessibility at the bottom of the web page, it takes you to a, a web page with someone um, with a sunflower smiling and look at, looking at the sky. It's actually building it into the DNA yeah. and everyday practice. It's, and that sort of links to the second thing, which is understanding the, the actual problems that people have. So. And this is a very good example of an actual problem that people have is that we we don't want you to do something great for mental health awareness. We we want you to show that you have thought about us and your products. And the way that you do that is by embedding us across across everything you do. We often hear firms talking about involving lived experience in their work. Um, and many of these phrases are peppered in the, throughout discussions that you hear, whether it's at the meeting room or the conference or you might read, read about it uh, in, in, in trade articles. But I'm thinking there must be different levels or types of involvement. Is, is that right? And if so, what are they? There are. Um, and if we go back to, to how I was framing it earlier as being a bridge between two sides of a problem um, mm. that need to be brought together. So you have the people solving the problem and the people whose problem is being solved. Um, there are really only two ideal ways to, to do this, um, involving lived experience. Um, the first of them is to turn the people with the lived experience of that problem into the people who solve it, which is a, in part a skilling issue, in part an empowering issue, um, in part a uh, resources and cultural change issue. It also impacts all kinds of things around their own levels of of resources to do things um, so that it's incredibly difficult the other is to have um people on the building side who actually themselves have lived experience um that also is incredibly hard because there are all sorts of barriers that stop people getting into those positions um i would say there are people who who are experts as well as having lived experience um as someone who sort of thinks of themselves as being sort of and as I would say um, an expert by expertise as well as an expert by lived experience it can be quite frustrating that 
the moment you say you have lived experience, that's the only thing people want to know about. Um, but both of those two are the ideals, but they're very difficult. So what we end up with in practice is trying to find what I'm, I would call the, the best imperfect way of doing it. Um, which is, it's often practically the thing you have to do. So speaking to people and then translating what they're saying into your design processes, involving them in design, um, and trying to, to learn from them. And it becomes a sort of an iterative process. Um, these are, these are less than perfect. And it's often, um, I'd say it's necessary, but it's important to realize that it's less than perfect. Let's keep thinking about the involvement of people with lived experience and the knotty questions of who to involve and deep breath here, how many to involve. So Dan, thinking about the who element first, is there a, a mental checklist that firms can use to ensure they're involving people with the right type and depth of experience? Yeah, I mean, that, part of that comes back to the what I was saying about defining lived experience is that, that it's, it's not, it's, there are some general things about lived experience that will in, will help you make a, a better sort of inclusive set of products in general. So understanding that, that people have some general needs um, and designing with those principles in mind. But also most of the time when you're looking to do this, it's because you have a particular product, a particular platform or a particular problem that you're looking to solve. Um, and so you need people with experience of that problem. Um, and the, so the the key is in to narrow it down and make sure that you understand what the problem you're trying to solve is and find people who have experienced that problem, ideally in the context of uh, products that are similar to yours, platforms that are similar to yours, things that are that make sense for the way you are going to set about doing it. So it might be that some people have problems opening their mail, but if the only mail they have problems opening is a mail order catalogue and you want them to open their bills, then that might not be appropriate. So you want people who have experience of a particular kind of problem with a particular kind of product. So this isn't about just saying, look, we need some consumers uh, with mental health problems because that's a, a priority for our organisation, be it corporate partnership or genuine interest. Um, this is actually defining your inclusion criteria quite yeah. specifically. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and then once you have once you have done that, bringing them on board in in the right way, um, bringing the right people on board in the right way. Um, and I think we're going we're going to talk about later about what what good involvement looks like. But the, but one of the fundamentals for good involvement is is it's just a sign of good faith to pay people for their time, um, and, and acknowledge the uh, the value of what they are contributing. So this is a ridiculous question. You might be thinking the previous ones are ridiculous questions, but it's uh, how many people with lived experience should be involved? Maybe I should have a light bulb and some people with lived experience around it trying to change it. How many people do we involve, Dan? <laughs> um, that, is, that is a daft question. Um, <laughs> Thank you. And the reason it's a daft question is, is, is it's a how long is a piece of string question because the it, it obviously depends what you're trying to do and it depends on the time scale of what you are trying to do. Um, if you have a very clearly defined, narrow task and finish, you might say, then you might not need very many people. Um, if you are trying to to design a huge platform, you will need a lot more people. Um, I think 
the analogy I like to use, um, it's a rugby analogy. Um, it's the analogy of a rolling mall, um, which is a, it's a group of people in rugby who carry the ball up the field. And like many groups, it's something that the members of that group will change, but the momentum of that group won't change. Um, mm. because the purpose of that group remains the same. And there may be one or two key players who remain the same, and others come in and leave at different points, depending on the kind of experience that matters at that point in the process. Because most processes aren't one thing. They are they are made up of lots of different things. Um, and piecing together what's right for each part of the process is, is part of what you need to do. So Dan, can we end by reflecting on the key aspects of lived experience? There's something very powerful and personal about hearing someone talk about their lived experience. It really captures people's attention, even more so when they're talking about our firm or our industry and what really needs to change. It can really grip us. However, there's a flip side and such is this power that sometimes, and I've been there in the room or I've been in meetings, firms often worry about asking the lived experience expert uh, questions and exploring what they've just shared to challenge, to probe, to unpack. Because um, they don't want to sound like they don't believe the speaker and they don't want to come across as rude. Um, so what advice do you have on not just listening to lived experience, but starting a longer, constructive and challenging conversation? Yeah, I think that really sort of that misunderstands to some extent what we find rude. Um, I think, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit and unpack it, but I, I would start by saying one of the things we, what we really find rude is when people don't either don't do what we have explained we need or don't explain to us why they can't do it. Um, so one of the things that people love to say after you've spoken is that was very powerful, that was very brave, um, that was so moving to hear that, that made such an impact on me, um, which is nice, but we've heard that so many times only for action not to be taken. And to be honest, the thing that was rude was not taking the action. Um, that's much, it's much more important that um, you ask the question. I think this is key. You ask the question that you need to ask to get the answers that you need to help you with whatever problem it is you are trying to solve. Um, and this comes back to what we said about, about paying people. Uh, so the, the framework in which you are asking questions matters. Uh, so I'm, if I'm here for a project, if I'm being paid, I've entered into this with an understanding of what it's going to involve. Um, I've accepted taking on the emotional labour and the difficulty of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, but I've done so in good faith that, that on, the, on the other side that there is someone who genuinely wants to listen and get something out. So I'm happy with answering questions. Um, I would rather you ask me questions that might be difficult for me to answer and maybe personal for me to answer that actually helps you to solve my problem than that you skirted around things and that the problem doesn't get solved and it can then feel as though I've been got there under false pretenses. Um, I think also there are some practical things you can do. You can make it feel safe for me to say things. Um, for example, by providing the accessibility I need for the encounters we're having. So whether that's a focus group or inviting me to speak at an event, um, making sure you ask me up front what are your accessibility needs and then providing them, that will enable me to feel safe to answer what you're doing and it will it will set up a, a good rapport be between us. 
Dan, where can we go to find out more about involving people with lived experience in our work? I am going to say, uh, as you probably guessed, I was going to say go to What We Need, um, which is, it's, I say it's an open source uh, platform for people to share, discuss, um, support needs around a whole host of areas um, in a whole host of, contact, of contexts. Um, and so I would encourage people with lived experience to go there and share their needs. Um, I would really, really encourage people from any firms or regulators to go there and, and look at the things that people say they need. The reasons why and the impact it has on people's lives are the things that, that will that will make you feel the urgency of dealing with it. But when it comes to the practicalities of dealing with it, there's lots of stuff there that is just based on the actual needs, which is the really crucial stuff. And Holloway, thank you very much. Thank you. And that was Dan Holloway. Do look up his work on vulnerability on LinkedIn, on his Oxford University spin-out, Rogue in Terrabang, and also on the website of Crowdsource Support Needs and Reasonable Adjustments site that he mentioned, which is whatweneed.support. Yes, that's the full web address. And that brings us to a close for today. I'm now off to live a little experience of my own with a cup of tea and a jammy wagon wheel. Other vulnerability-related snacks are available. So until next time, keep up the good work, keep on spreading the word, and keep on remembering that, as always, vulnerability matters. Vulnerability Matters was produced by Mandy McGreevy and Phil King and brought to you by the Money Advice Trust.